0: Everybody. welcome back to the Phil Crowe Podcast. I am not your host, but I'm here on the uh, the intro. I'm here with Hunter Constantine. He is our marketing guy. He's also a grand master. A grand master in uh, USPSA. USPSA. It's some kind of shooting thing. I don't know. These kids competition shooting. It's what all the cool kids are doing. <laughs> So welcome, Hunter. How, how, how have you been? What's been going on? Tell me some stuff. I've been good, man.
1: You know, we've just been busy out here crushing competitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen our students come into cl- students from classes and courses come into these competitions, which nice. I love to see. Um, if you guys have the opportunity to meet me, you'll know that competition shooting is a main driver in my life and activities on the day-to-day outside of marketing for Fieldcraft Survival. So be sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Oh, yeah. yeah. Instagram, Facebook, Fieldcraft Survival, Fieldcraft Mobility, and Fieldcraft Survival Fit.
0: And this uh, podcast is brought to you by Killcliff. You can find Killcliff at killcliffe.com. Use code Survival10. That is S-U-R-V-I-V-A-L 10 to get 10% off. Killcliffe is an energy drink company. They more I, I, we like Killcliff because they taste great, they work, they're clean energy. Uh, they have tons of electrolytes, B vitamins. Uh, this one I hold in my hand right now is their recover drink. It's about 15 calories actually, and no sugar. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for one of those uh, nice at the end of your workout recover, here's you go. The Kill Cliff recover drink is probably right up your alley. They have lemon lime. They have orange. They also have it infused with CBD. You get 25 milligrams of CBD so that they're going uh, they have three flavors for that. It's, Orange Crush, Grapiest of All Time, Goat, and Mango Tango. So check them out at uh, killcliff.com, use code survival10, and get 10% off. They also are a big, big supporter of the Navy SEAL Foundation. They're an official partner with them, and we uh, we, we also also support military veteran uh, yeah. organizations. That's a veteran company, right? Uh, yes. The, the, the or, uh, Navy SEAL founded it, so... Yeah. But yeah, yeah, Navy SEAL Foundation, check them out. They give back to the to, uh, soldiers, or uh, soldiers, Navy SEAL, <laughs> sailors, airmen, service members, families, things like that. So check them at killcliff.com. Also brought to you this podcast is KC
1: Highlights. They've been a lumen provider for over 50 (laughs) years 1970s when they got started they provide off-road lighting vehicle lighting uh utility lighting i think they have handheld lighting now too yes they do um you can see their pro 6 light bars on uh mike's go rig and mike
0: Hernandez's. uh gladiator
1: jeep he's building up yep. right now and there's
0: also uh, some content out there uh we did on the uh mike Hernandez uh jeep build yeah the the what
1: does he call that the rescue jt i think yep. is the hashtag he's using for that um casey highlights is the utmost quality for off-road lighting that you could ask for uh, we have a coupon code for you. If you visit kchighlights.com, that's K-C-H-I-L-I-T-E-S.com, and use code
0: Fieldcraft, you'll save 10% on your order. Yeah, if you have a light, if you can mount a light somewhere, you can use, uh, mount a KC light anywhere. Absolutely. So I mean, wherever you're out hunting, camping, off-roading, day-to-day driving, they have every light you can even as you can mount it on your vehicle. You can get the KC light on there. So absolutely, and they have a
1: Long list of product lines, so I'd check out their website, see what works best for you, see what what works best for your rig, and go ahead and send it. Again, that's kchighlights.com, and use code Fieldcraft for ten percent off. Also, we have Triarc Systems, and they make some of the best custom guns that I've seen on the market. Oh G- yeah, Glocks, nineteen elevens, their Tri eleven. Uh, which is similar to a 2011 but with some um strategic upgrades in that gun for reliability and i mean it's one of the smoothest operating guns that i've shot and uh the rifles are outstanding with their track 2.0 barrels they they're some of the most accurate i know some three gunners that have used a 12 and a half inch barrel to engage targets out to four and 500 yards and they placed well that's awesome Um, my boys in the competition community already know who that is but um It's amazing. And I've already turned on some friends and family to get in their rifles. There's a little bit of a lead time, but let me tell you, it is worth the wait.
0: It's one of those rifles you buy. It's like, it's one and done. You don't have to do anything else to it. It's a lifetime rifle, lifetime carbines, lifetime handguns, lifetime anything. You buy it once and and that's all you need to do. Absolutely. Everything's hand fitted and
1: you won't be disappointed with them. If you visit triarcsystems.com, that's T R I A R C S. -S 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 y s t e m s dot com and use code Fieldcraft you'll save five percent and when you're looking at a premium rifle five percent is a good That's chunk a nice of change. chunk right there Hell absolutely yeah. and oh, yeah. with how high ammo prices are getting right now yep. we got to
0: save as much money yep, as we yeah. can to get that ammo <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so our last one up is Arturo Tires you can find them at Arturo dot com and we're having a special rebate thing with them. So if you buy four of their Trailblade tires, you get a 75 gift card to Amazon or Bass Pro. So check them out at atturo.com forward slash fieldcraft. So that's com forward slash fieldcraft. F I E L D C R A F T. So here's the deal. You buy four, you get a $75 gift card to Amazon or Bass Pro. When you put in that, uh, Turo.com slash fieldcraft. So what we're going to do, they have six tires in their trailblade series. This one is our third one. We're highlighting. It's the Trailblade MTS. Borrowed from short course off-road racing teams. This extension of the Trailblade MT is built for uh, excuse me, built for superior traction and features new new additional growth groves and sipes, as well as a unique four-lug design. So we're looking at the highlights on here, we're looking at shoulder. Tread blocks, integrate directly into the sidewall for a unique lock and enhanced grip off-road. Stone injectors, keeps channels clear thanks to segment segmented arches. So you keep those rock, those uh, all those things that get caught up in your tread, it gets kicked out of there through this new stone injectors. You got shoulder sipes, we got traditional sipes. So all these sipes on there, that's going to make it easier for wet traction, enhanced grip, off-road conditions, things like mm-hmm. that. You're looking at connecting tread blocks, increase tread block stiffness and promote even wear through the life of the tire. So, you know, these tires are gonna wear out evenly, so you're not having to go do all these crazy things with balancing and, and getting them all, you know, taken care of at a shop. They're gonna eat they're gonna wear evenly as long as you know you're you're taking the right precautions. Also, we got the forward lug center design provides unique look inspired by short course racing and gives double the biting edge grip. So all that grip you need there when you're on the trail or on the road. going to provide that for you and also the deep tread pattern the pattern encourages off-road mayhem so check it out get on the road with some trail blade tires there's six uh six six types of them so we did the first one was the boss we did the trail blade mts now we're doing the trail blade mt and uh you're just gonna have to wait for the other ones but go to aturo.com forward slash fieldcraft buy four trail blade tires get 75 dollars gift card To either Amazon or Bass Pro. So check that out. Today's guest we had on the podcast, Austin, uh, our video slash survival Mm -hmm. instructor, got to interview the runner-up of Season 6 Alone, which you can find on History Channel and um, Netflix. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Her name, I don't want to mess this name up. So it's Woneo Tebow. So check her out. It's a great podcast. It kind of goes into, you know, her background, the show, and everything like that. So check it out. It's going to be a great podcast. Enjoy.
2: Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Uh, I am Austin. I am currently our uh, media extraordinaire, as George would call me, and a survival instructor for Fieldcraft Survival. And I am here today with Wonia Thibault the runner-up on season six of Alone. And well Nia, thank you for being here. Yeah,
3: thanks so much for asking.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We were uh I everybody here in the company watched has been watching the show and um we're all huge fans of the show. And then uh we were all rooting for you uh <laughs> watching and and seeing it go down. So um It was really cool and a really cool opportunity to be able to have you on and and talk to you about your experience on the TV show and as well as about a lot of things that you have going on personally because um, you have a really interesting background and you're you're doing some really cool things. So um, we're excited to talk to you about it. So um, we'll kind of kick it off and uh, let you talk about your background and kind of what got you into the whole thing.
3: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just to say, too, it's awesome to hear that you guys were all rooting for me because, you know, I did a lot of of kind of lead up to the show talking about how I was going to be out there and what my attitude. And I was like, you know, I'm like a small woman who's in here for connection. I'm not like a big, burly military dude. So yeah. I like actually put itself as the contrast to the military mindset, which is part of why I was excited to be contacted by you guys and like actually have the conversations with folks from the military background and, you know, like see where, see where the conversation could go um, because of that.
2: So, yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. And that's something we are talking about a little bit before we got started is, is the differences that there are. And uh, it's, it's a really cool opportunity to have that for, for people that uh, we have a lot of people that listen to our podcast that are military and, and have those experiences, but we also have. Uh, a big part of our following and listeners that are just you know people that are civilians have never been in the military and they want to hear and learn that experience
3: yeah and i think that you know obviously the military has an incredible amount of history and in, in survival situations and being able to bring the different perspectives and merge that with the military perspective that's that's where you get you know the best possible mindset for it rather than like compartmentalizing and we we do stuff totally different therefore we can't have overlap. um so yeah no it mm. seems like really fertile ground to talk that's about.
2: a that's a really good point i like that and, we'll, and we're going to get to that because uh, i want to hear more about that but um talk to me about uh where you grew up where you're from your family tell me about all that
3: yeah absolutely so i grew up in northern california um the- the east side of the state, so in the Sierra Nevada foothills, as opposed to, you know, near the ocean. Um, and both my parents were super outdoors folks. You know, my mom was in the Sierra Club and going hiking all weekends, and my dad was an endurance runner, so he was doing, you know, like 30 to 100-mile trail runs regularly um, and was it was competitive in 100-mile races. So I definitely had both, uh, you know, the natural world and, and camping and hiking and being out a lot and the kind of, like more extreme pushing yourself, um, in, in my background from the time I was young. And, you know, I don't really remember a time when I didn't feel really deeply engaged with the natural world. Like I remember, you know, coming home from town, my mom would have to drag me off the porch because we had this one tree in the little corner by our stairwell that was full of spiders. And I would just like sit for hours watching a spider wrap up a floor. And like, that was totally what I was all about. Um, And so as soon as I got older and got into school to where I actually could, you know, study biology and botany and whatnot, there was no question that that was what I was most drawn to, um, you know, identifying wildflowers and birds and such from, yeah, from pre-puberty. So, and then at the same time, I also was a person who was just super, super driven again, from as long as I can remember to do and make things with my hands. Um, so, you know, like making doll clothes and, you know, learning to crochet as a kid. And, you know, like I remember like making ridiculous things that weren't even set up to be successful, but I was just so driven to make, um, my parent, my dad grew up in New Hampshire in a town that a shoe company was like the main employer for a lot of the people. So, um, a lot of my dad's side of family grew up working in the shoe factory. And I remember, I don't know how old I was, but couldn't have been more than 10 spending like a huge part of our family trip to New Hampshire in my grandparents' basement, just like piecing together a sandal out of bits of leather. And they totally fell apart the first time I made them because I didn't <laughs> know what I was doing, but you know, like just that drive. And so I feel like I went on to study biology in college. And, and then when I found, the world of ancestral skills and like, you know, hide canning and baskets and and all of that kind of thing. It was like the perfect merger of this drive to know about the natural world and understand it and to make and do with my hands so that I was actually, there's a field called ethnobotany, which is like plants interacting with humans and vice Hmm. versa. So, um, so yeah, it just felt like the thing that I was born to do from the moment I came in.
2: That's awesome. Um, So, you said your, fam- you know, your, it was a family ordeal. Um, so, did your family like really uh, have a good understanding of that uh, survival esque type mindset that you that you have now, or was it um, was it more the hiking weekend weekend adventure?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was not, I was not raised with any of the ancestral skills or the more survival stuff. Um, you know, I grew up in like a gated community. It was, it was a rural area, but it was not, um, you know, we had a few strawberry plants in a little garden and that's as much as it was. So it was not something that I got from my parents. Um, the love of the natural world. Yes. But not the like, you know, harvesting from it to live.
2: <laughs> gotcha. 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 That's interesting. So. Um, growing up, where, where do you remember, um, kind of taking that path where it was like, I, you know, I'm seeing all these cool places, I'm going all these cool places, I'm learning so much about it from my family, but where did you kind of take it to that next level and when was that?
3: Yeah, great question. And I, I think a lot about these that I'm, you know, as I do a lot of these interviews these days and, um, you know, the, the first thing that I really remember was um, where I grew up there's a lot of manzanita mm-hmm. uh, a shrub called manzanita that um, every year the bark peels off and so it's like in the, in the spring as the new year's growth is coming and so there's all this hanging bark coming off of them and I remember hearing at some point that you could make a tea out of manzanita bark and I just became obsessed with collecting handfuls of it and like I would bring home bags of mans I didn't even like tea. No one drank this stuff. It was not particularly <laughs> delicious. But I was super driven to to harvest and gather and like something about that process of not just being in the world but like bringing something back that I could apply in my life. That was huge and I would say I was probably like eight or nine. Wow. Um, yeah.
2: Wow, that's 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 pretty young. Um, I I grew up in a r- very rural part of North Carolina, and and remember, uh, you know, a, a similar type instance in my life where you know I was out and getting getting more involved, and I was in Boy Scouts and all that, you know, and and remember thinking like, wow, there's a lot to this. Like it's a, it, it it really kind of like drives home that saying, you know, a lifelong student because it, it starts early and you and you and you carry it on. So uh, as you got older, how did that develop? You know, how did that work with? you know, were there a lot of people out there that were in that community that you could get involved with or were, were you kind of like the lone wolf?
3: Yeah, no, I was definitely the one freak for a long time. (laughs) Uh, I felt really honestly, for a lot, because I'm also an only child. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say that I was kind of the weirdo often. Um, (laughs) and, uh, But then when I was 19, um, a friend gave me a book, a Tom Brown book, um, that kind of, you know, talks about a lot of these skills, and I got really excited by that. And then I was in college at the time and wanted to do a field term, so a whole summer spent backpacking and getting credits through a backpacking course, and I specifically um, picked a course that had instructors that had taught ancestral skills, and I was like, oh, well, for sure, and so they told me about this event where a bunch of instructors come together to teach these things, and I ended up going to that. And that there, I met you know like tons of people who were into this stuff, and met some of my very first teachers and mentors. And that totally changed my life. And from that point on, I just threw myself into it hundred percent.
2: Wow, that's awesome. And that was 19- when was yeah. that?
3: Nineteen ninety-five.
2: That's awesome. That's so cool. So you guys were really uh, the way that people look at survival and look at preparedness now. Is significantly different than the way it was looked at then. Um, so, as you kind of got into college, uh, tell me about what it was you studied and and kind of how. The, tell me about the scene and how it was back then.
3: Yeah. Um. So. So I studied biology and environmental studies. So I kind of focused on botany. So I did a double major. Always been a little bit of a brainiac. So I did like I did a botany major in my biology, and then more animal and mammal focused in my environmental studies degree so more like natural history and less strictly scientific um so yeah so all about the natural sciences and then i also did like my my senior project was not just looking at mammals, but looking at how humans have interacted with mammals and like native uses of the different animal parts and such. So, you know, tanning hides and making fish bones uh, your fish hooks out of the bones and, you know, making cordage out of sinew and every possible thing that you could do with, with parts of animals. So kind of, again, applying that scientific knowledge to hands on um, and uh, the scene. So, so again, like I, I never came at it from the survival perspective. I mean, I was really interested in the idea of like running naked into the wilderness, you know, <laughs> just a nice, little and, and living for the rest of my life out there. But it was more about, it was more about the skills and that life weight than it was about survival. So it wasn't coming from like, you know, like a prepper place and a what if, and I need to be able to, to you know, get myself through whatever thing. It was more about, um, it was more about just feeling like it was a better way to live, you know, and also studying environmental studies and recognizing the ways this very extractive culture that we have where we're, you know, raping and pillaging the planet for our own survival, that there's an alternative to it. So so it kind of merged those things, like really liking it and loving living this way and feeling like it meant that I could be on the planet in a way that was not inherently destructive like what I saw going on
2: around me wow so you'd say that your your love of what you grew up doing with your family kind of turned into how can I preserve this uh going forward
3: yeah yeah for sure
2: that's awesome what else um in college you said you met a lot of people and kind of got involved with more groups your instructors and things like that um where did that kind Uh, of yeah
3: so so this was at an event that was separate from my university that wasn't really happening at my university though um and for that reason, I was I had kind of had like one foot out the door a lot of my time in college because I was also really engaged with this other world. Um, but that the like primitive skills gatherings scene was really different back then, too, where there was really just one or two events a year where we all came together. And then the rest of the year we were, you know, the freaks. <laughs> 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 wherever we. Be. Um, whereas now that's really different. It's like a really thriving scene and culture and lots of people um which is awesome. But yeah, in the 25 years I've been involved with it, it's really, really shifted in that way. Wow. So yeah, I had instructors at my college who encouraged me, but none that were like teaching the kinds of stuff I was into.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Where did that, um, you know, knowledge of you kind of double dipping, if you will, into that scene as well as college, where did that kind of culminate for you after school?
3: Um, You know, that's a great question, because I worked in environmental education for my first several years out of college, so, like, outdoor ed centers and, you know, taking kids on nature walks and teaching them plants and tracking, and then um, got a place as the, like, main um, ancestral skills instructor for a year-round camp for kids, and um, that was my first more year-round job, and I didn't end up staying with it for I mean, I finished like that season, but I felt it felt inauthentic for me to be teaching this stuff when I wasn't living it as much. So I, I set my life up so that I was working seasonally so that I always had big chunks of time to just dive into living in the woods with folks and, and practicing this kind of stuff. But I definitely had a period of life in my early twenties where I, I mean, and part of it was, was, I was in a, a relationship. Really, relationship at the time and felt like I, I had to compromise that lifestyle in order to not be the weirdo in the woods you know and in order to feel um yeah I just had this like idea that um that I needed to grow up and and get a real job I feel like I kind of caved to those pressures and I did that for a little while and I was totally Totally miserable. And it was a really good experience for me to see what it was like to just totally compromise and not follow my heart. And I was absolutely miserable and finally wrenched myself out of that, uh, including like being in graduate school and quitting graduate school and divorcing my husband and like running off to Northern Ontario with this person I had just met to live with Native people up there. Like complete 180. And that was a huge turning point in my life of being like no this is who I am and what I need to do and I'm never I'm never turning back I'm never compromising um and that was 2002 I think so 18 years ago and yeah and I was right (laughs) (laughs) so I've led you know interesting life and done a lot of things and had a lot of adventures but certainly like skills and teaching the skills um have been at the heart of it all for all that time
2: that's so cool that's so cool because there's there's a lot of people that dabble there's a lot of people that are interested. And there's a lot of people that like to just get their toes wet and that's okay. Um, But there's so few people that live the life that actually go out and spend the time, learn the skills and live in a, in a very primitive sense. And that's, that's really interesting that you did that. So talk to me a little bit about that. What was that like? Who were you with the environment, all those types of things?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's looked a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. I mean, that, that, time that i that i talked about when i went up to northern ontario that was amazing um lived out in the in crown land which is like the canadian equivalent of national forests um for for several months and we were in the process we were like had an old old trapper's cabin that was in the family of um of this woman who who my friend had met at a at a gathering of Anishinaabe folks up in Way, northern Canada. Um, Yeah, we lived out there, and we were, like, building a a winterized shelter, a semi-subterranean shelter, and drying as many blueberries as we could, and smoking fish, and just trying to, like, get set up to really get through this really intense northern winter. Um, And then we ended up getting getting, uh, the border patrol called on us, and we ended up... (laughs) Canada and my visa wasn't up but one of the people I was with their visa was up so um so that's one of the ways it looked like and then I ended up living uh in a little off-grid community finding my way from there over the course of a couple well from there I went and lived with a woman who is uh, an amazing basketry teacher and grows willow and teaches basketry and lived at her place just diving into into basket. The tree and tending willow, um, and then eventually found my way to an off-grid homesteading community um, way up in northern, northern Oregon, where I lived for many years and built a house, um, you know, from from the trees and the clear cut and the soil on that mountainside. Built a part earth, part straw, part lumber house, and uh, grew most of my own food and you know a lot of wild food too. Um, so yeah, it's looked a lot of different ways and a lot of seasonal camps, like going and harvesting wild rice in the Midwest. Um, doing big seasonal food camps and tanning a whole lot of hides and traveling around to different skills gatherings where people get together to teach this stuff and making connections that way and going on, you know, camp outs and adventures with folks that I meet there.
2: That's incredible. So I can't even imagine that. Um, I, have spent my fair share of time in the woods and, um, I can't imagine living like, you know, years like that and building it primitively like that. That's amazing. Um, How much would you say?
3: I I, I had tools for building. I wasn't building everything primitively. There was a time that I wanted to be 100% Stone Age and do things primitively, but that was when I was younger and was more extreme. And so, what I've really looked for is more of you know, like what can I actually what's sustainable for me to do and. In this world, that isn't being totally primitive. It's having periods where I go more primitive or more minimal gear, but also, you know, I want to still be able to maintain relationships with folks who don't want to live that way. So I, you know, and I and I want to be able to teach. And these days, I'm behind a computer a lot because I'm writing and making videos and stuff. So anyway, I just don't want to give the impression that I'm doing it all primitively because okay. that isn't true. But so so it, to was, do it primitively.
2: so it was kind of the balance of like what you said before of of taking the love for the land and the love of nature and taking the skill sets that you knew and tying it into that preservation more so than primitive.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or finding like the the nice balance that worked for me in my life. Um, So like wearing a lot of buckskin and using a lot of, um, a lot of things that I've made in my daily life and incorporating a lot of wild food, also growing a lot of food and also buying, you know, high quality food at organic, markets when I can. And yeah, so, so finding that blend that's as close to living wild as I can while not saying no to, um, you know, being able to be in the world and effective and maintain relationships and share what I do.
2: Right on. That's so cool. Um, so how much of, would you say your school, um, combined with what you learned growing up prepared you for that? Do you you remember tapping into that? Oh, I learned this in school, or, or was it almost like a brand new skill set, and you relied on the people out there?
3: Uh, you mean you mean on my time on a loan, or like my time out?
2: Just your time living, living just you know? out time living. Yep.
3: I would say that very little of that had to do with my schooling. I mean. Certainly, there are ways that a deep understanding of the natural world is super applicable to living wild. Like, of course it is, you know, like understanding mammal behavior is really helpful in hunting and trapping, obviously, but it's more of an extrapolation of what I learned in school, not anything that's directly applied.
2: Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, and so when you took that time living out there and you and you learned all these different skill sets, um, when you first got out there, were you just like, "Oh, I got this! Like, I'm I'm totally prepared for this," or were you just like, "Oh my gosh, I might be in it over my head"?
3: You mean on a loan specifically?
2: Specifically, more so whenever you were you were doing it on your own time.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I would say a blend of it. I don't feel like I ever. I mean, you know. Even with decades and most of my adult life focused on on these skills, that is so different than growing up living wild and having, you know, grandmas and aunties and, and grandpas and fathers and all these people to teach us our skills, you know. So, no, I don't think I've ever had the illusion like I've got this, I've got this totally dialed no matter what. That's not how the natural world, I mean, wild animals who know nothing but living wild, that isn't true of them. They die all the time you know, doing the best they can. So, no, and that's that's one of the things that I think is really important in all of these skills is bringing a sense of humility, you know, and a curiosity and a desire to learn because as soon as you think that, oh, I've got this and you're not coming from a place of humility, you're not paying attention, you know, you're not picking up on the little nuances and you're not adjusting what you're doing based on what you're seeing. You know, overconfidence is probably the biggest killer in, in wilderness situations or survival situations. So learning, you know, taking that that beginner's mind and mindset out with you. I think that's super key.
2: I I really like the way you said that. That's really well phrased. That's something that in the military, that's something that's taught, especially at the survival school was, um, you know, as soon as you think that you've got this, Mother Nature will humble you very quickly. It has a a very unique way of doing that. Um, and you will, yeah. you will learn sometimes through mistakes and that's where training comes in and it's, that's the place to, to fail, not when you're doing it for real. So I, I like the fact that you said that, uh, about being humble and having some humility while you're in the woods and while you're living that lifestyle. Cause it's, it's very key to survival.
3: Yeah. And you can be as confident as you want in all of your skills, but what if you get hypothermia and all of a sudden your brain isn't working or you've got all the skills, but you just sunk an ax through your leg. You know, like all of the skills in the world aren't going to help you if your situation changes real fast and that can happen, you know?
2: Absolutely. And it's, it's probably not even a matter of if it's a matter of when it happens, uh, in those environments, uh, it, it will, it will catch up and you will be faced with some adversity and, and being prepared for that mentally is, is a huge part of what we talk about it at field craft is mindset, you know, and, and having the right mindset going into those, um, places and going into those uh, circumstances can be tough because a lot of, there's a lot of fear of the unknown. There's a lot of wondering, do I have this? Or maybe like you said, being too overconfident and having the proper mindset ahead of time, knowing that that adversity is going to be there, knowing that there's going to be a lot of unknown factor involved can almost set you up for success more than going in thinking, Oh, I can handle anything that comes my way.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And I really find that the land is attention and knows the land really recognizes humility and respect. And you know, then it it doesn't feel like it has to teach you a lesson, as you say, like when you go in overconfident, you're kind of asking for it.
2: (laughs) A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I, so now I want to get into alone and I want to hear about your experiences there. And I know there's some things that, um, you know, we probably can't touch on, but, I want to know, you know, how did that process start? Did they reach out to you? Did you apply? Like, how did all that work?
3: Yeah, great question. Yeah, they reached out to me. Uh, It was not on my radar at all. And in fact, because, you know, I've been teaching, teaching this stuff for over 20 years and I have a website and I've had a, you know, a school myself for a long time. Um, so, you know, I have, I have a presence and a reputation. And so I was getting called by a lot of different calls like before Naked and Afraid even had picked out its title, they were calling me, and I was like, Yeah, you know, like the idea of pushing myself and doing survival in this way is really interesting to me, but like the way you're talking about setting it up feels really gross. To me. And then it came out and it was called Naked, Sin. and I'm like that's what I thought, like <laughs> inserting and all this like extreme and drama, like that's the polar opposite. So I've been called by a million shows, and I was like, gross. No, no. And then there was finally one show and I'm not going to say who they are, but they like came out. I was like, okay, this is more documentary style. And they came out and they filmed me in my life when I lived off grid in Oregon. And I got the same feeling, like they were clearly going to change my life to build the drama that they wanted. And I was like, no, screw this. Never again. And so when Alone contacted me, the circumstances were really interesting because, um, I had just come back from a surf rival trip, like a not, totally primitive but a super minimalist gear you know only wild foods and going really hungry and it was an amazing trip and I hadn't done one like that for a number of years and out there I was like I need to do this you know I need to get back into this as a life way but I want to do it way more extreme than this and like was holding this vision of calling this thing into my life and then as soon as I came out I checked my email and I had the letter from the alone show and I was like Ooh, that's not what I meant. Like, I wasn't thinking television, but there were so many things about the, the experience that were like, oh, that's exactly what I was asking for. So therefore, like, this is what the universe presented me with. So I can't just say no. Like, I have to look into this a bit. And because we do all of our own filming on alone, it felt so much more authentic. And so it was the first time that I was like, actually, that would be amazing. Because when else am I going to, you know, carve out, the time in my life to go out indefinitely, you know, like, that's just, that's pretty hard to make happen. And so in that way, I was like, all right, this is, this is not how I pictured it, but I'm in. Right. Um, so yeah.
2: That's a, and just the premise of the show, if you're, if our listeners aren't familiar is, uh, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they essentially take you out through the wilderness, whatever the environment is that your season dictates, uh, they hand you, a pelican case of camera equipment and the bag that you take with you with the equipment that they deem necessary, and you just—it's you versus Mother Nature for however long it takes for there to be one person left.
3: Yeah, except that I would amend that and not say it's you versus Mother Nature. I would say it's you out there in nature and with nature. The like versus that. part is not how I approached it. But yeah. <laughs> It is that you get 10 items, you get to choose them. So it's not just what the show deems appropriate, but they have a a small list and you can choose items from that list and you can choose, you know, like a saw is on the list and then you can choose what kind of saw, but yeah, but yeah, they, they drop you off. You know, you get plumped down by helicopter, as you say, with the camera equipment and a few items and yep, it's how long you can manage to stay out there. Um, you know, and those items, might include as much as two or maybe even four pounds of food so you can choose as one or two of your 10 items uh food that is up to two pounds so like the most that you could possibly bring is four pounds and if you do someone's texting me and it keeps me making dingy noises um <laughs> <laughs> no so problem. if you keep two items worth of food then you don't get you know maybe a bow or fish hooks so it's you know big choice but yeah i think a lot of people are like oh yeah that sounds cool what kind of food did they give you like no no food <laughs> not there, under the crux of the whole thing
2: that's very cool and and i like the way that it has it does have a very primitive approach to it you know and and in a lot of people's minds that's what survival is is i have this bag with just a few things in it and i go out and i'm it, like you said in nature and i'm I'm trying to find uh, a way to, to not just survive, but to thrive out here and, and, and to make myself last. So it does approach survival from a very unique perspective of uh, what most people think survival really is. And I think it's, I think it's a really cool, cool idea for a show and I'm kind of jealous you got to be on it, but, um, so talk to me about, talk to me about your list. What did you pick? What were, what were your items? If you remember? Sure.
3: Yeah. Um, so I brought a sleeping bag that felt pretty key. We didn't know until about a month before we went um, where it was going to be. It was clear that it was going to be in an extreme, you know, like a cold environment. But they told us it would be somewhere between like Vancouver Island and Mongolia. And the Arctic is not between those. It's way more extreme. It's way colder. Um, so, you know, it's, you're, you're preparing for something, but you're not sure exactly what you're preparing until until the last minute kind of. Yeah, I would say it was like... Maybe mid-July that we found out where, um, and, and we launched the end of August. So, um, or we went up there the end of August and launched a week and a half after that. But, um, yeah, so, so a sleeping bag, because I knew it was going to be cold, and that seemed like a no-brainer. So a 40, minus 40 sleeping bag. Um, a cook pot, super important, because it's not just for cooking. It's your way to carry and store water as well. Um, a ferro rod for lighting fires, lighters aren't an option. Um, so ferro rod is the yeah. only option for fire starting. And again, up there, making a fire and doing it in a way that conserves calories is super key. As coming from the primitive skills perspective, I'm much more of a friction fire person. I had very little experience with ferro rods, but it's a lot of energy to, to make friction fire every time you need it. And when it's, you know, below zero, you need that fire right now. Um, so Yeah. So sleeping bag, cook pot, ferro rod, I brought both uh, multi-tool with uh, modified multi-tool that a friend made for me to my specification, some of his ideas and some of my ideas. Um, so it was a really good all-purpose crafting, um, trapping, hunting tool. Um, also a belt knife, a fixed blade knife um, felt really, really important to me. Um, I used to never, never being in the world without a knife on my hip, you know, so having a knife out there felt super key. Um, and then a saw. I was back and forth until the end between an axe versus a saw or bringing both. Um, but because the trees were all so small, I didn't feel like splitting was going to be an issue. So went with a saw. Um, so that's five, I believe. So mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh, that's six. Um, and then fishing line and hooks. It's a huge lake. It's one of the world-renowned fishing spots. So fishing line and hooks. As it turned out, those didn't help me because I had only very, very shallow water where I was. Um, Bow and nine arrows we were allowed. So we got a bow and a quiver and nine arrows as one item. Um, And then um, then another last-minute decision... And I'd been planning to bring snare wire, but at the last minute, I changed that out for paracord because it was so windy. It felt like that was going to be really, really key for shelter. Um, and then I did bring one food item, so that could be 10, two pounds. Um, and I brought pemmican, which is a mixture of fat and dried meat and dried berries.
2: Interesting. Those are, those are some pretty good choices um, looking at your list here. Um, and it's it, it, it's a fine balancing act, finding 10 things, right? Uh, you know, and
3: Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
2: It one of the things we talk about here at Fieldcraft is uh, having tools or items in your bug out bag that are multi-use. Things that you can use for more than one purpose. And that's a difficult thing to do and it, it takes time to think through them and it and it, it it's the consideration involves a lot of different things, your environment, you know, your your current status, what your health is, what you know to be your ability. That's a big that's a lot of big stuff to consider. So especially with the unknown of Uh, exactly where you're going to be, exactly how you're going to do it and how you're going to approach that situation definitely makes things pretty difficult. And uh, it's something that people, you know, should be thinking about when they're thinking about their own preparedness and their own uh, survivability in certain circumstances because you don't know where it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. And I think that this show kind of puts it out there for people to really see it. And it's, it's good to hear this perspective from you. Because a lot of people don't view it that way. They think they're, you know, they're gonna to get to pick their environment and how it's gonna happen and the items they're gonna have when it goes down and they might not, you know, and it's something to to really think on. So how long did it take you to come up with that list of like, okay, this is what I'm gonna go with? Was it kind of like I knew off the right off the bat or was it a lot of meticulous thinking and, and digging through? Yeah, that's a
3: great question. I would say that I had probably three quarters of my list dialed from Pretty early on. But yeah, there was a ton of back and forth, and not just back and forth about what items, but what kind. Like, I had an idea for a frame saw that I didn't end up going with. I ended up going with a folding saw, um, which was awesome. And I did, you know, make multi purpose too. But um, so there was a lot, a lot of weighing. And as you said, like, really thinking about multi purpose and absolutely everything that I could do um, with with tool and with the proper tool. So I went a little more tool heavy. And originally, I was, like I said, thinking about the saw and an axe that so would have been more tools than I think anyone had brought out there before. But because I am such a craft oriented person, I felt like I would be better off with tools that I could make things for. But then when I heard it was the an Arctic and the trees were all going to be small, it's like, okay, I'm probably not going to find wood to make a bow out there. So if I want to be hunting, then I'm probably going to need to bring a bow. Um, so, you know, there's so much to weigh and yeah, it took me a long time and I, and I changed my mind, um, a couple days. Like I changed out a few items, as I said, at the very last minute out there and, um, yeah. One of those was a huge bummer. I was actually, I never considered not having fishing line, but um, fishing line and hooks. But as it turned out, I was in one of the few locations that had zero fishing opportunities. So the fishing line and hooks, the only thing that were like a hundred percent in terms of my food getting materials um, from the beginning, that's the thing. that if I had known, I would have switched out for snare wire and I would have I would have had probably easily two or three times more food if I had, had snare wire instead of fishing
2: Wow, and it's interesting to look at that, and especially hindsight for you and and us learning from your experiences. Uh, that's how it is, you know. That's that is a very real circumstance that you could find yourself in as you think that this one item or these five items or what have you are the perfect thing for a bug out bag or a perfect thing for a preparedness survival scenario, and and it might not be because you don't get to pick.
3: Right. Exactly. So you don't get to pick where you are in the greater sense, but on a loan specifically, we had narrow, you know, narrow areas that we couldn't go beyond. So in a normal survival situation, I could have hiked to where there was good fishing because it's, you know, this enormous lake and fish are one of the major food sources on it. But in this situation, I didn't get that choice. I I didn't know where I was going to be plunked by the helicopter until I was on the ground. And by that time it was too late to change my mind about item.
2: Right. And that's, and that's a great point. So, um, you know, and in, in during the show, so now you've got your, your items and you've and you've you've got your bag packed and you're you're going out and you're like, This is really happening. What was going what was kind of your mindset as this started off? Was it like, Oh, this is kinda, you know, Hollywood and I'll just go out there and kinda tiptoe through and get my T V time or were you like, Let's let's get it. Like, I wanna do this.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, neither of those. Like it definitely didn't feel Hollywood. It felt very real i mean like once you have been flown out for like 45 minutes away from any sign of humanity and you're deep in the wilderness it does not feel like hollywood and because we were filming ourselves you know it's not like there was you know glitzy camera crews or anything i mean there are camera crews that come out for the medical checks and they're getting like b-roll and you know some of the sweeping footage of the of the zones like there are camera crews that Are out there, but not interacting with you when you're out. So no, it felt very real. Um, And, you know, the thing is, is that I was, it felt like the adventure of a lifetime to me. It was much more about my experience than the fact that it was a TV show. And because, because once they drop you off, it's just you out there. It's really easy to get away from the feeling of it being television, even though you're you're filming it. You know, there's no part of the outer world that's inserted into yours and affecting your experience besides what you insert yourself through your filming. Um, no, to me, it was really about having the opportunity to apply the skills that I've spent my whole life building. You know, it was like this is what this is like the crux of decades of studying and practicing this stuff so it just felt like an amazing opportunity in this incredible wild beautiful place and I was just in awe of that place and in love with that place immediately you know my time in northern Ontario um felt really really extreme and far north to me but it was nowhere near as far north as I went on this time and I never felt as connected to that landscape as I did to um to where we were um, for alone. I just felt that that landscape resonated with me so deeply. So that was too big for me to be thinking about the television thing or the Hollywood thing. You know, it was just about being there and surrendering to the experience in the land.
2: That's really cool to hear that it's a a pretty authentic uh, feeling that you got from that, because uh, just from our experience in the company and, uh, and Mike can, I'm sure, talk on this. It can get bogged down with a lot of the TV and, and, and producers and things like that, it can get bogged down and kind of take away from the experience. So it's good that you were able to have that experience uh, on the show and during your time out there. Um, So what was kind of your mindset when you first got on the ground? So the helicopter leaves, you've got your bag, you know, your parameters and you know what you got to do. What was kind of your mindset?
3: Yeah. And just to say, you don't actually know your, your land parameters, you don't know the boundaries. Um, you find those out if you go over them and you get a, a signal that you're you're out of bounds. But, um, but to answer your question, uh, I mean, it was the most amazing feeling. A lot of people talk about drop shock and, you know, all of a sudden being freaked out when they hit the reality. But for me, I was like, oh, thank God, because I had been I made most of my gear to be out there. And I was still up until like 3 a.m. trying to finish all of my like I was literally knitting the sweater I wore out there every day until like the night before launch. So to me, it was just like, oh, finally, I get to relax and enjoy all of the stress of the preparation. So that was really unique to me because most people are, are buying fancy gear. But um, but yeah, being the one responsible for making it all and knowing that my life was going to depend on it was a huge stress. So once I was on the ground, all of a sudden like 80% of my stress was eliminated and then it was just like playing and I was there and it was so exciting and so beautiful. Um, but definitely my first thought was like, okay, I need to assess this landscape. I need to see where the resources are. I need to see where the best shelter location is and have it be a location that I have access to the resources that I need, but I'm not so close to my hunting grounds that I'm going to be scaring the game away. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was definitely very practical-minded from the beginning and started doing, you know, doing wanders and assessments of my greater landscape to, to kind of, you know, scout all of those things. Um, and I ended up setting up a temporary shelter the very first night, but within two days of scouting, it was pretty clear that the area I'd set up my temporary shelter was the area that I wanted to stay. So I started getting to work on a really, uh, you know, a pretty darn step-out shelter right away and part of why I brought the pemmican ration was my thought was to focus on shelter for the first few days and not even worry about food because I knew that this was the arctic and you know we could be having our first really intense weather any second and you can go a lot longer without food than you can without adequate warmth and shelter Um, and as it turned out you know I woke up day three covered in snow so I did not you know None of that was wasted energy. It was really important to be focusing on shelter from from drop.
2: That's really cool that you would uh that well, it's really smart that you kind of prioritize like that ahead of time and um and that's something that I like to teach in our survival courses and is is prioritizing your needs and and that's something that I was taught in the military and you know and it's a lot of people like to believe that every scenario that you find yourself in where it's like okay the first thing i'm going to do is get water or the first thing i'm going to do is find food or build a shelter it it's really not like that you know you you have to prioritize the needs for the situation that you're in and every environment every situation is going to be different maybe the first when i'm on the ground in this situation you know maybe my first thing is probably getting out of the elements maybe my first thing is building a fire or maybe the first thing is treating an injury that put me into this scenario to begin with so you have to you have to go into these scenarios and situations with an open mind and and obviously you did that which is a, which is a good thing and you also brought up another really good point um, and that's something that we hear a lot in military in the military and and people that are involved with it in law enforcement uh, as well is you train hard so the fight's easy right and you spent it sounds like you spent a lot of time learning and and taking your time in school and and actually living that lifestyle so whenever it came time to actually do it, it was like, Oh, okay. Like, let's, let's do all this, let's put all this hard work to use, you know, and all this time in uh, to good use out here and, and actually enjoy this experience. So that's, that's really cool that you were able to do that.
3: Also, you know, you asked some of my preparations ahead of time. And, and like when I was first there, I also had schedules for myself where I designated one day a week that was about self care. Like This day, I'm going to find something to do for myself that isn't just survival related, but that it's about like keeping myself as well as possible. And then one day a week was a dance party day, because if I'm not loving life out there, then I'm not, you know, I shouldn't be out there. So I was like very, very intentional around mindset and making sure that I had a positive mindset, that I felt connected, that I felt grateful, that I felt happy to be there every day, because that makes a huge difference in your overall outlook, which in turn makes a difference in whether you're stressed out, which makes a difference in how well your mind functions and how efficiently you're using your calories and how you feel about every second that you're out there. And if you're miserable and you're holding a device that could call a helicopter to come and get you, you know you are way more likely to press that button than if you're making sure that you're loving your time.
2: 100%. Uh, I completely agree with everything you just said. And, uh, and it's something that it's something that's hard to experience until you're faced with a, a situation where you're in, where you experience that adversity. Um, and that's something that we would talk about too at the survival school a lot is, um, you know, finding a way to keep your mind busy to where you're not just focusing on the suck all the time because the weather, the environment, all that thing, all those things combined are, it sucks. You know, there's no getting around that, but finding a way to um, find some kind of release, you know, rather, you know, and you can look at some of the old, Uh, prisoner of war stories or isolated personnel that were in during Vietnam or World War II and you know they would uh, stitch together their uniforms they would do maintenance on their uniforms or some guys would clean their guns or do all kinds of different things and that was to keep their minds busy and to keep their minds healthy so they could stay focused on the things that they needed to do to survive and I think that's really important. Yeah absolutely and that's why
3: that's part of where I think that my background as a biologist and naturalist was huge out there because I could I could tell plants that I had never met before, but I knew what they were related to because I knew you know of similar things down south and like being in a totally new environment that I knew nothing about was so exciting for me because I have that naturalist mindset and that curiosity and I could ask the right questions, be like, okay, what is this bird that I've never seen before e- eating, or what is it related to that I'm familiar with, and that that was a big part of keeping my mind busy and keeping myself engaged with the place that I was.
2: So once you got out there and you're in this and, you know, you said day three, you you had some snowfall and what do you think helped you the most from your experiences to be successful out there?
3: Yeah, you know, it's hard to say because there's, you know, I have a pretty broad background in this stuff, but people ask me this and I and I pretty much always say my sense of connection and belonging out there and my love the place and the experience and I know that if I had had just those things and no capacity to feed myself you know that I wouldn't have lasted that long but I also feel like I went like I did not have very much food out there I went so much further on so much less food and that's being revealed in the current season people on season seven were in the same environment but got way more food generally than the people in my season, partly because they had our season to watch and strategize and choose the appropriate gear um, and see what strategies worked and what didn't. But to me, it was the love of place and the connection that allowed my body to do things that it technically shouldn't have been able to do given how much I was eating.
2: Wow. That's a tough thing. I remember in training for me, um, I did okay with just a little bit of sleep. I I did pretty good with, you know, having all these tasks and things to do but the one thing that crushed me was not eating and if anybody anybody that knows me knows that I like my food and and that's something that that that's really difficult to overcome uh for me and and for a lot of people and it's something that you may have to um or that you should really get in your mind that is a very real consideration in a survival type environment you know
3: yeah, and I prepared for that as well. i have been doing a practice called intermittent fasting for for maybe a year and a half, so prior even to, to knowing I was going to go on a but then I was very intentional about it before going. I spent periods of time eating just in ketosis where you're not getting any carbohydrates, and it switches your metabolism. Um, and then, you know, the, the process of fasting, it gets you comfortable with being uncomfortably hungry. It gets your body to know that it's actually safe even when it feels like it's starving, you know? So the more times you have experienced that, the less it's going to freak you out when you're in it. And the less freaked out you are, the less stress you're under, the better all your systems are running. Um, so yeah, practicing starving makes you better at starving.
0: <laughs>
2: turns out. Um, Absolutely. And I had I had friends that I was in training with that, that were doing intermittent fasting. And I was like, dude, you're crazy, man. Like I'd go to the chow hall and crush food. Because I thought that was the smart thing to do. And then I was miserable in the field when I didn't have any food. And that explains it, you know. And so um, it, it is in having that right mindset for even that. And all the smallest little things become very like under a microscope in the field. And when you're in, in those environments and they become so much more difficult. And it's so, and it, and it seems like you're never hungry until you don't have something to eat right when you want it. <laughs> so. Right. So now that you've been out there for a little, a little bit of time, when did you find, um, cause it sounds like your mindset going into it was like, this is awesome. Like, I love this experience. I'm going to take the most from this as I can. Um, when did you start to notice or did you start to notice where it was like maybe a mindset change or where did it start to get difficult or where, where did things start to change for you or did they?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like they didn't. Um, the truth is that like, I mean, I was, I was sobbing when they pulled me out of there because I did not want to go, you know, like I probably would have stayed out there. Like, had I not known that I could get pulled from medical, I probably would have stayed out there until I died. You know, my, my desire to be out there, my love for the place and the experience was greater than my self-preservation instinct and that's why I made myself leave even though I didn't want to because I knew that I knew that I had the capacity to drive myself to my own harm um so like there were there were basically you know times you know waves of more challenging times like when you know I didn't really get much food at all besides berries um until, until day 14. So it was two weeks of barely eating at all. Um, besides teeny little pinches of my pemmican. Um, and so I had like a first wave of hunger and then, you know, like feeling a little bit weak and then getting to the point where I adjusted to it and I was fine. And then I started eating for a while um, my traps were getting more successful. Um, and I just gave up fishing because fishing was just wasted effort. I'd been fishing every day and that was just throwing calories into the lake, honestly. Um, but then the molt, the rabbit molt happened and a fox came in and started clearing out my traps. And I had another deep hungry period where I didn't have the reserves on my body anymore. I had already burned through all of the extra fat. And that was, a challenging time and definitely started to get into the like, okay, this is hard. This is hard. Okay. I'm starving. I'm starving. This isn't good. And then I just changed my mind about it. And so this is where mindset comes because I was like, okay, I'm focusing on the fact that I'm starving, but what if instead I tell myself I'm not starving. I'm getting more in touch with the many generations of my ancestors that experienced famine every year of their lives. You know, I'm I'm experiencing something that most modern people don't get to experience. I'm learning. And then I was like, oh, and there are people who do fast, or One of my um, who do fast regularly as a spiritual practice or as a cleanse. So I'm not starving. I'm cleansing. I'm doing a really deep cleanse. And then as soon as I've changed my mind about it it, starving didn't feel as hard physically anymore, you know? So like I had waves of it being hard, but I don't really feel like I reached a turning point where all of a sudden it was suffering and it was hard. I just found my way around the hard and changed my attitude around it. And, um, you know, it wasn't until the very, very end that I actually started to feel the level of physical deterioration in my body, because like I did I mean, I lost a third of my body weight. I lost 50 pounds. Like I'm, I'm five, four, you know, 50 pounds is a lot of my weight. Um, and I felt great the whole time. It wasn't until the very, very end, the last couple of days that I started to actually get in touch with what was happening in my body on a deep level, like my eyes started to get blurry and um, I was having a hard time. Like I could still do what I needed to do, but it took longer and it was harder to get the motivation up to start doing it. Like everything just felt that much harder. And so it got to where I felt like I I was still functioning fine, but I felt myself approaching the edge of a cliff and I knew that I didn't want to step over that cliff. Um, So... I think that I left before I really experienced what my edge was. But like I said, my edge might have been, you know, like half an hour from pushing myself until I died. So I guess I I learned that my edge is a lot further out than I ever would have dreamed possible, Um, which was amazing, you know. And I'm glad that they would have pulled me because the first time I looked in the mirror and saw how completely skeletal I had become, it was really shocking. And it was scary to know that I have the capacity to push myself myself that far and to do myself real harm
2: yeah absolutely and that's that's a really good uh, example of um what i i'm i'm sure people have been hearing for a long time but that, that that's that the body will keep going the mind wants to quit way before the body will and as long as you have the right mindset the right attitude um to keep pushing your body will keep going And eventually, obviously, it does get to a point where the body will deteriorate to a point where it cannot physically keep going. It doesn't have uh, all the things that it needs to keep going um, for health reasons, you know. But uh, as long as you have the right mindset, you can push yourself very, very far. And it's really important for people that are of a preparedness and survival mindset to understand that because one of the first things you have to become familiar with or the idea that you have to become familiar with is that being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And it, it's inherent to being out out in those environments. You're going to be uncomfortable and you you have to be able to be okay with that in your mind and testing that prior to. Uh, it's just like training for anything, you know, and, and we talk about training uh, with a firearm all the time. You need to be on the range often and you need to be able to, to spend that time practicing and practicing and practicing. So that way, if the the you know situation were to arise where you needed that skill set, you have it and you don't have to think twice. So testing your mental fortitude ahead of time, uh, there's all kinds of ways to do that. And it's something that I think could be extremely beneficial um, for all of us. One, just for our mental health and our physical health. But two, if you ever find yourself in those scenarios and in those situations where you need that and need to be able to tap into that, your brain is familiar with it. It knows, it knows the difficulty and the struggle of that experience. So I think that's a, a really good example of that. And would you say that you, you probably tapped into that, um, during your time, just on your own, where you, um, lived, a, you know, in a more primitive type, um, lifestyle? Yeah, that's,
3: that's what I was gonna, that's what I was thinking of when you were, when you were talking to was, um, um was just that that was one of my big advantages too is that I I have not been a person who's really attached to comfort a lot in my life you know like I've lived off grid a lot I've lived in northern Ontario without a heated indoor space I've lived in Vermont and Wisconsin and upstate New York without central heating you know just chopping my own wood um I lived for years without running water hauling hauling my own water so um you know I I've lived in hot places without air conditioning you know like Building a a sense of comfort with discomfort has been a big part of my life. And it's actually my preference. Like, there's something that feels gross to me about having all of my needs met all the time. And it's what, you know, we're an incredibly spoiled and entitled society. Like it's not what we evolved with to be comfortable and well fed and have, you know, like the same general temperature range, a narrow temperature range all the time. Like that is not what this body evolved for. And there's something deep inside that knows that it's not really good for me. So I've consistently chosen something different in my life. And so when I was out there and even just like media and like I don't listen to canned music that much. So I didn't miss it out there, you know, like I didn't miss the kinds of comforts that other people were out there missing because I'm not used to them. They're not my normal way of being. So yeah, I would absolutely say that the lifestyle that I've chosen was one of my huge advantages out there and an advantage in any situation, you know, I, I have an online skills gathering that I'm, that I'm putting out through my school right now. And one of the things that I talk about is building a relationship with want You know, in our culture, normally the second we want something, even if it's something, you know, made in China that we have no access to, we can usually get it within 24 hours. Well, what does that do to us? You know, that we never have to sit with the discomfort of wanting a thing and not having it. It means that if you ever have to go without, you're kind of screwed. Like you're going to have a much more challenging time having a good attitude because you're setting yourself up to be uncomfortable and for disappointment. And you can do the opposite. You can set yourself up so that you don't have these great expectations, and you don't expect comfort. And then, when you get a little bit of it, it's a gift, and you're grateful for it, rather than you know feeling entitled to it and bemoaning it and feeling like you're suffering the second you don't have what you want.
2: Wow, that's that's a really great way to look at it. And and I would say that that's a that's a, actually a very common um, co- common mindset in survivors and in, in things that i've seen and read about and if you if you deep dive into some of these different people that have survived uh the most crazy circumstances is that's something that they they all have something in their background or something in their life where it almost prepared them for that situation unknowingly and they have had a benefit from something prior to that situation and it and it helped them thrive or survive at least survive those situations um what out there while you were on the on the show, uh, what did you find to be the most difficult thing? What what probably rattled you the most while you were out there and, and challenged your mindset?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um honestly for me it was the idea that I was gonna have to go home one day. Um it was the the fear that at some point something might happen where I would have to choose to go or where I would have that choice made for me. Um because I, I mean, I loved everything, even the hard things, you know, being someone who like likes a good challenge. Um, I freaking loved how pushed I felt all the time out there. Because the more I felt pushed, the more I found new depths of what I was capable of, you know. Um, I had three times that I was out there where I got a pretty good chill and was, and was somewhat hypothermic. And each one of those was hard, not because in the moment. It scared me not knowing if I was going to be able to get warm again, but it scared me to know that colder weather was coming and that I could potentially be in another situation like that that would force me to ask for help. Um, So, yeah, yeah, the hardest part was just knowing that eventually that it wasn't really my life, you know, and (laughs) that eventually I and something would take me out and that's not to say that like I wish I was still out there because I have you know a lot of people that I love and my ideal isn't to never interact with another human being for my whole life but that way of life was so beautiful and that place was so like I can't even describe what the sense of being somewhere so wild and nothing in the entire landscape and you can see for miles because it's a lake you know it's this huge Mm -hmm. lake so you can See, only like 40 miles and there's no sign of anything human anywhere within that. Like there was some, I've never been anywhere so remote and wild. And that fed this part of my spirit in ways like I don't even have words for. So knowing that like it was the pinnacle of wild for me and I would probably, you know, it wasn't likely that I would get to experience something like that again. That was the hardest part.
2: And you know, and that what you just said ties into um, what you said earlier. With you've lived a life that you've grown accustomed to not being always super comfortable, and you knew because you were able to appreciate all those things out there—the beauty of the of the landscape and appreciating the little things that you're doing and the small successes. And that's something that I've always talked about in in survival is living in a window, you know, in little windows of time. And it's important for not just those small victories where it's like, all right, so this sucks right now, but for the next hour or 45 minutes or five minutes or 30 seconds, I'm going to focus on this one thing and be successful at that one thing. And then I'll move on to the next 30 minutes or 30 seconds or whatever I have to do. And not only just focusing on what sucks so I can get through it or, or the task at hand, but focusing on those little, those little windows of time where you can appreciate, um, where you are in time and what you're doing and what's happening around you because all that ties together um, and all that is uh, the culmination of having a good mindset and preparation and all of those things and it it kind of brings you to like a pinnacle in those in those situations because I've, I've found myself just in, in training in those same circumstances where you're cold and you're tired and you're hungry and you don't want to be there anymore or you, you start to focus on the suck and you start to notice like I'm being really negative and, and just being able to stop, take a deep breath and appreciate something else. And I appreciate like, like, dang, I'm out in the woods right now surviving and doing something that a very small percentage of people have ever even not just got the privilege to do, but do it well and, and get paid to do it. I was getting paid to do it and it was awesome. And it, it, it's so easy to overlook that whenever you're uncomfortable it's so easy to just look at the circumstance at hand and say well poor me poor pitiful me you know what am i going to do like i'm just ready to get home and i feel like that's a an unfair you know mindset to have for yourself because you're robbing yourself of something unique and obviously in a survival in a true survival scenario it's hard to look at something on the bright side, right? It's hard to look at the fact, like, well, I just rolled my car over, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and now I'm stuck out here, or whatever. But finding beauty in little things, it all ties back into having a proper mindset and keeping your mind healthy to survive in those in those circumstances. Yep. And so I wanted to ask you about your skill sets while you were out there, you know, and you talked about how earlier, you know, friction fire does burn a lot of calories, and and I'll tell you. I know how to do a fr- friction fire and maybe in my entire time being involved in survival and around that community, I've probably successfully gotten five, six friction fires. It's a difficult thing to do. It takes, a, like you said, a lot of work. Um, so feral rod was was my go-to or a lighter if, if it was an option for me. And so kind of looking at all the different skill sets, because a, a lot of people's minds go to, oh, all the basics of fire, water, shelter. And Um, procurement of food, procurement of that water. But each one of those can be subcategorized almost indefinitely for little skill sets that you have to have or you have to acquire. And they all are, you know, and in my mind, when I start to look at it, I see it like almost like a chart with numbers. And it's like, oh, 5% of my energy goes here, 10% of my energy goes there. And those skill sets that you've acquired over the years of living this life, how challenged were those skill sets? And what do you think, do you, if anything, did you learn or or lean heavily on while you are out there?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, definitely crafting is a huge part of my of my skill set and my experience and what I do all the time and what I'm teaching all the time. Um, so I say those were huge. You know, like I had I had a lot of my own homemade gear, um, and there I modified it, and I needed to repair it, and I had the tools and the knowledge to do that and you know making things that I that I needed to make my life easier just like baskets to hold cranberries and the spoon to eat them with and you know a spatula for flipping the fish that I never caught um (laughs) 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 but you know like having those things be so innate and so deep in my in my muscle memory and in my body that they're just like they're fun to me and they're a reward like literally i would let myself harvest willow as a reward when i got something else done like if yeah. i got a rabbit then i would get to go and harvest willow as a reward because it's a treat to me to do that and so having having that that you know kind yeah. of lifestyle where i love doing those things and out there on the land i was able to do it that was a huge part of of the skills that served me out there because i just have that that kind of mind that's always looking to improve my situation. And I remember one of the medical checks pretty far on like in the day 60 or something. And some seasons haven't even lasted till day 60 and the crew coming out there to do a med check and being like, you're like more organized and doing more things now than you were the first couple of weeks. Like, how is that possible? Most people are falling apart and like falling into chaos at this point and just like trying to keep themselves going. But I was like, Always, always looking for things that would improve my comfort, improve the efficiency. You know, like organizing my firewood better so that I could get to the kindling and the small stuff and the big things from where I was sitting by the fire. And so that kept my mind engaged and it made my daily life easier and more pleasant. And that's huge. Um, so yeah, all of those kinds of of skills and ways of thinking, um, I think, were really big.
2: That's a really cool. And then, point. Like, no, go I was ahead. just
3: gonna say my natural skills. So so my naturalist skills for sure and like knowing, you know, knowing how to tell what's going on by the landscape by the behavior of the birds, or you know, knowing what the needs of the animals are such that I'm better able to determine where they're gonna be moving and better able to trap them. So that was huge as well. And knowing, you know, having a deep background in botany such that I could tell the, the things that were likely to be useful for me based on what I knew those plants to be related to, even if I didn't know that plant. Yeah. So a you, lot of different things. were
2: useful. That, that really brings up a really interesting point. And for people who are in the military or who have been, or are associated with in law enforcement or, or what have you, um, it brings up the point of always improving your situation. Right. And we talk about that in the military and that's something that they talk about in tactics, you know. Where uh, in the military, you're always looking to improve your situation in a, in a tactical environment, and, and in this and in this scenario, you're talking about always improving it uh, in a survival and preparedness mindset because there's always room to refine a process. There's you, you'll you think you know a way to do it, and then you do it, and then you notice ten better ways to do that. And when you have nothing but time, and you have nothing but um, literally, your survival to rely on, um, and your skill sets to rely on for your survival, improving your situation only makes sense. It doesn't mean that the first time you do it, like it's like you said, when you first got out there, you made an initial shelter, and that's a really smart move because then you can build upon that and and, and grow that into something that's more sustainable for the long term. And I I think that's huge for um, for having that. Um, and being com- and making yourself more comfortable in an uncomfortable situation, because that's ultimately what um, it is: is improving your situation, is making yourself more comfortable. In a sense that this isn't, this is no longer uh, this huge struggle for survival. Now it's sustainment, and I'm starting to be able to incorporate new skill sets and incorporate other things into making my life better out here in this environment. Until I can either a go home, be recovered, what have you, and in your case. Uh, win this TV show, you know, and 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 that's that's a really unique place for your mind to go because a lot of a lot of people don't ever experience that. Um, what would you say for someone who's new, um, talking about those skill sets for someone who's new to the preparedness realm and wants to get more uh, in tune with maybe a survival skill set or something? What what skill sets would you encourage people, or what things would you encourage people to learn um, to be better prepared for those scenarios?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, cultivating the right mindset, I think is huge and cultivating curiosity and a desire to learn, because I think that what a lot of people fall into with like survival and preparedness and bushcraft and that kind of thing is like, oh, here's like the things I'm supposed to know. I'm supposed to know a bunch of knots and I'm supposed to know, you know, a bunch of different shelters and like putting yourself into boxes as opposed to like, What does this situation actually call for and how can I be ingenuitive in meeting the demands of this situation rather than just like trying to plug in this knowledge that I have stored up into a situation that it might not be appropriate for? So basic skills like being really persistent with a knife, like doing a lot of different carving things so that you can make anything without having to work very hard at it. And that's what I meant with like having crafts in my body like that it wasn't a big deal for me to make whatever I mean I didn't have to think about how to do it because it's already in my muscles so like so I think that a few basic knots that you know well enough that you can tie them when your hands are barely working you know or when you're in a panic or something like that like try dunking your hands in ice water and then tying your fancy knot you might find that a simple knot is a better thing to have dialed than a super fancy knot you know um so so yeah I think that you know Use of basic tools, being really proficient with a hatchet and a knife and a saw and knowing how to fell trees and understanding how, you know, carving with the grain versus against the grain works and how splitting something out to make it smaller rather than whittling at it for hours. You know, basic things like that, proficient use of your own body, things like, you know balance and leverage and being being comfortable in your own body you know like um like i think about morse kohansky who's an amazing bushcraft teacher but he has in his book how you can cut down a sapling in like three seconds it would take you longer with an axe, app, but applying the right amount of leverage and learning how the materials work then using your knife in just the right way you can cut through something that's wrist thick maybe a little smaller than wrist thick but just with your knife pretty quickly. And then you're not endangering yourself with a tool that's bigger than you actually need. So like, to me, it's all about the ingenuity of mind and being a problem solver and a critical thinker and bringing curiosity to the table. Because with curiosity, you're going to learn how to work with the materials at hand, just like bringing humility. Whereas when you think, you know, you've closed yourself off to learning and then you can't adapt anymore. So as with everything, mindset mindset it's more important than any one thing but you know like knowing how to make cordage knowing how to use it knowing how to use a few basic tools knowing how to throw together some good shelters knowing lashing you can make so many things lashing um you know notching and and learning you know some basic physics like why triangular structures are stronger than other structures all of those basic things i think are really huge um basic knowledge of first aid and medicinal plants and edibles and animal behavior. Those are all key, but it's like, you know, you could just keep keeping skills onto that such that it feels like you're never going to master all of those skills, but mastering the mindset gives you a leg up on any of those skills, even if you've never tried them before.
2: That's really well said. And I, I totally agree because, uh, and that was something That I learned and it was taught um, just in my time when I was in EMS. I I worked as a a paramedic in North Carolina for a few years before the military. And um, that was something that I had a really good instructor that taught me is he's like, you can learn all these technical skill sets on how to help somebody. But one of the best things you can ever do for yourself is, is tie yourself into something that I've just started calling the environmental factor of of the which was really mindset is of what is this scene going to smell like what's it going to look like what are the, the sounds you're going to hear and all those things add up to being successful in smaller skill sets and it all starts with the mind and i and that's something that we push heavily here at, at fieldcraft is having the right mindset over over everything you know because the skill sets will come with practice but something that you can train yourself on for free every day is having the right mindset going into, uh, whatever it is. I I think that's super key.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you can do it just by, you know, letting yourself get a little extra hungry and then looking for the gift and the hunger. Like it's something that you can, you can create really easily. Um, even if you're not in a wilderness situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so now at the end, how far, how many days were you there?
3: 73.
2: Seventy-three days. So, at around, I'm guessing, from what I remember, it was it was in it was after sixty is whenever I started to notice uh, from watching the show where you your body was really starting to fail you, and it was you were starting to have a hard time um, compensating for those failures in other ways because there's only so so far like we talked about earlier that you can push your body. Um, what, what was your mindset going into those last few days and, and kind of tell us about those last couple of days? Cause I'm sure those were really difficult, uh, mentally as well as physically.
3: Yeah. And you know, the truth is that I don't feel like I ever experienced my body failing me. Um, I, what I experienced was recognizing that I didn't have any fat left on my body and that what my body was burning was starting to be muscle, but I still felt strong. Like I could still draw my bow, 45 pound bow. I could still draw my bow um, until, you know, and left. So the show kind of made more like I was talking about noticing things shifting in my body, but I feel like they made it more seem like my body was failing me than it actually was. Um, it wasn't really until day like 70, 71, which I was saying before, like I started to notice, okay, like I can still do everything I need to do, but I have to push harder to make myself do it. Like I don't have the motivation that I had. I had the physical capacity, but I didn't have the motivation. Um and what I would do to to push more was um as you kind of talked about like small achievable goals. And you know when I was like okay I might not I'm probably winning isn't gonna be a reality, given, given how much weight I'm losing and how little food I'm able to bring in. Cause my spot was very, very sparse, no big game, no fishing and very limited small game. Cause I was on a rocky peninsula, you know, like other folks had deep woods. I had mostly bare rock. Um, and so I would give myself little measures of success. Like, okay, if I get to day 70, that's 10 weeks, that's amazing. That success. If I make it until freeze up and I have the possibility to ice fish, That would be incredible, that success. So I just had all of these little goals that I set for myself so that no matter what, like, I got something to be like, yeah, I'm getting it, as opposed to to beat myself up about. Um, So, like, when I would go and check my trap line and there wasn't anything, which was the vast majority of the time, you know, most days I was not bringing in food. But I would make sure that I brought home firewood. And then I was coming home with something. You know, I was coming home with success. So, you know i'm a pretty goal oriented person and making little goals was huge for me and you know as i said i'm i'm pretty good at pushing myself and you know what what they ended up telling me cuz they were very concerned about my health and my weight and i was like but i feel great and they when i came out they said you might have felt great until your heart just stopped pumping you know like that's a thing mm-hmm. that happens with anorexic people is is they keep going until they have a heart attack and die in their 20s and they're like, yeah, like you had the profile of someone who would have just gone and gone and gone and not found their edge until they keeled over.
2: Um, yeah. And, and so. unfortunately that does, that does happen to people in survival situations. And, uh, but sure. there's a, so many things that I feel you did very right. And I, I would say that you, you approached the entire thing from a very, um, like you said, you're a very goal in, oriented person. And I think that was evident on, on the show from the way that you approached a lot of the some of the difficulties that you faced, um, what was probably the most difficult goal for you to achieve? Would you say it was the, was it gathering food? Like you said, you're kind of in a, in a tight spot there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was in a really challenging spot to, to be hunting and trapping, and I didn't have big games. So, you know, that's why I brought my bow, was banking on a moose. And, you know, I was out in the woods with a birch bark moose call that I made, you know, like day three, I made a birch bark moose call because I knew the rut was on. Um, and it became clear pretty early that, like, that just wasn't, I had no sign, you know, I had old signs old antlers and old poop and old brows, but I had nothing fresh. My area just wasn't going to do that. And, you know, then my second thing was like fish, of course, like I can bring in a lot of fish. Nope, that wasn't going to happen. So then trapping, but I didn't bring snare wire, you know. So, mm. being, so the, the most challenging thing for sure was trapping rabbits with really insufficient materials, you know, like nine times out of 10 overnight, the rabbits would just snip my fishing line in two and my trap would be laying there on the ground. So it was really challenging keeping positive in the face of like each one of my traps taking me an hour to set up as opposed to, you know, five minutes as it would have been with Mm -hmm. snare wire. And still those traps, you know, only 2% of them were ever successful. Um, Every single daylight hour was spent trying to maintain my trap lines and set up new traps. So it was an incredibly challenging place to be bringing in food, and I didn't bring in very much of it. You know, I mean, I went, I went ten weeks on like nine rabbits and ten squirrels and one grouse.
2: Yeah, that's, that's insane. When I think about that, I'm like, God. If I went more than like three days without an MRE, you know, I was hurting. <laughs> So, and and speaking of moose, the guy that won, um, he did bag a moose, Mm -hmm. you know, and that put him at a huge advantage. Just the fat stores alone that he had from that, just, oh my gosh, you know, and yeah.
3: And the show tried to make it look like I had a fighting chance, you know, like, oh, he's losing weight and she's getting squirrels. And it's like, yeah, he lost a bunch of his fat, but that's because he had like, probably 50 pounds of fat to lose and he lost maybe 10 of it i never had like a gram of fat mm. rabbits and squirrels fat on them you know no. so i had lost more weight than him but they but they made a thing about his weight loss because they wanted to make it look like at a chance but like squirrels can't compete against the moose.
2: no <laughs> <laughs> i mean
3: i, I would if we'd have the same food I would have done better because I have a slower metabolism. He's a, he's a tall slender man. You know, he burns through the calories like crazy. I could probably go three times further on the same amount of calories than him, but I didn't have a spot that had those calories. And he's incredibly, you know, he's like spent months living on his own in Siberia. He was made for the Arctic challenge and he happened to get a spot that had amazing resources, probably more resources than any other spot out there. Mm -hmm. And he had incredible skills for exactly that environment. So,
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. the moose
3: definitely bagged it for him.
2: For sure. Yeah, it put him at a big advantage early. So uh, after the show and and looking back after everything kind of wrapped up, how did you feel overall about your experience? And how did you feel with how you did on the show?
3: Uh, I mean, I felt amazing. It felt incredible. Everything about it was like so blessed and magical and incredible. I mean, I, it's like the most amazing period of time in my entire life. And, you know, even though I know that I would have been so much better off with snare wire, there's also part of me that's like, it was perfect in every way. And if I had changed one big fundamental thing about it, you know, like maybe if I had had snare wire, then I wouldn't have had some of the other experiences I had that I'm so grateful for. So, who knows, like, if I had had more food coming in, I wouldn't have known how far I could push my body on so little, and that was incredibly empowering, you know, to go as far as I did, given the spot that I had, and the resources that I had, feels like a bigger accomplishment than if I had done what I did with a moose, you know, not that I would have been complaining, it would have been amazing to have a moose, and I tried very hard for a moose, but, you know, like, I can't second guess any part of it because it was all incredible. And I, I really had the sense I started, you know, you get so deep into intuition out there, like nothing but the world around you and your own center in it. I felt like I knew as soon as it was down to just me and Jordan. Like I felt pretty, like I remember them asking me as they were pulling me out, like, how do you think you did? And I was like, Well, I think it was me and like one, maybe two. I said like maybe two other people because I didn't want to toot my own horn too much, Mm -hmm. you know, but (laughs) I felt like what was going on. And that was, that was so cool. So I felt super proud of myself and incredibly empowered. And, you know, like I feel like a strong and resilient and skilled person, but I never, you know, you don't know until you're in a situation like that, what your, what your actual capacity is. So I felt incredibly gratified and empowered and proud of my time out and the choices that I made. You know, I, a lot of people see tapping and not being in there until I either won or got dragged out of there screaming as a failure, but I don't see it that way. I see it as winning. Like I did exactly what I wanted to do, which was demonstrate that that approach and the importance of mindset and connection and like respectful interaction with the landscape was a really viable strategy, I got to prove that by being the runner up, you know, and I got to have an amazing experience, and frankly, the world is a weird place, and when you come into a pile of money, all of a sudden, it can really change your life and your relationships in ways that aren't always pretty, so I feel like I got everything I wanted and came out just short of potentially having my life really altered in ways that might not have been wonderful for me. Um, so yeah, no regrets whatsoever. And I, I would do it the same. I mean, obviously I wouldn't, Right? I would change things so that I could survive better and longer. But that said, like, I'm so happy with the whole experience that on some levels I wouldn't change it also.
2: Yeah. That's a great mindset to have coming out. Uh, and I'm, and it's hard coming off of, uh, something that's difficult like that. It's hard to get back to like a, a normal after that. But I mean, I r- honestly, probably with you it sounds like that is kind of maybe that was the extreme of your normal, but that's some version of your normal as it is, you know, and obviously you start something like that endeavor, like the show with, with hopes and, uh, a desire to win. But I think you went into it with a, with a mindset of, of wanting to learn and for the experience more so than for the money or the victory or any of that. Totally. Yeah.
3: Winning would have been like the icing on the cake, but it wasn't what I was there for at all. Um,
2: that's
3: awesome. And, and I ended up glad, you know, um, you look at it and a lot of people who who uh, win the lottery, it totally tanks their lives, you know. So I was like, eh, who knows? It probably wouldn't have. It probably would have been fine. But you never know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just super happy. About it. And Jordan's great. Like, I'm super, super happy for him. He totally, you know, he killed it out there. And he's an awesome guy and is doing great things with it. And, yeah. That's I'm awesome. Totally pleased with
2: and and now since the show and and getting back, what was it like? Kind of getting back to normal for you? Like, was there any difficulties uh, health wise because you had lost so much weight? And then uh, where did you kind of go from there?
3: Yeah, no, it was really hard coming out. Um, the physical was part of that. I didn't. I mean, here's the thing. I think that because. I chose to go right as I felt like my body was really shifting in dangerous ways. I saved myself some of the really bad long-lasting health things. Like Barry came out day 69 and he lost about 80 pounds. So he and I were on par with the percent of our body weight that we lost. He had way harder time physically. Like he was way worse off in his body and had a much longer, harder recovery. And I think it's because he wasn't listening to his body and he and he pushed it you know, um, and he was really suffering and he didn't listen to that. And so it took me a long time to recover and get back to full health, but it didn't feel hard. I just like knew it was going to be a process and was patient with it. And it was freaking weird. Like the weight didn't come on. Like I put on a bunch of weight. As soon as you start eating, you put on weight, mostly in water weight, you know, cause you mm-hmm. get really dehydrated with, ketosis you don't store water in the same way so I put on about 10 pounds within the first week or so and then it just like stopped and I didn't put weight on again for a while and then once the weight started coming on I put on a pound a day like I got I got big and I got weird the weight came on in totally different proportions than my body is normally like normally I'm pretty well proportioned but I like still had super stick skinny arms and legs and a big old gut you know, like my body's never shaped like that. So it was really disappointing. And I was afraid that my body would never be the same again, for sure. And then there are all these little windows of you being like, oh, yeah, no, I'm back to normal. And then three months later, you're like, no, I was crazy. I wasn't normal then, you know, like now I'm normal. And then now, you know, and so so now I feel like I'm more or less back to normal in my body. And who knows what I'll be saying next year. But the mental was more intense and harder for me than the physical, Um, I had a really hard time with like numbers and logistics and phone calls and computers and any, any expectations on me of like doing things at a certain time or in an expected way after like that much freedom, I mean, months and months of total freedom and determining everything along my own time limit and nothing asked for of me. By anyone besides, you know, like that. I keep the camera rolling. Um, Yeah. Like, and yeah, something about communication via devices instead of face to face. Like I loved being around people had no problem being around people. It wasn't. Well, Within a couple of weeks, I did. At first, I felt very, very kind of tender and raw and had a hard time being around many people. But you know, but before long, I was happy to be around people. I just couldn't talk on the phone or answer emails or do any of those things. Like everything involving technology mm-hmm. and modernity was really, really hard for me for a while, months and months. Still, <laughs> I'll probably, <laughs> probably always have a harder time with it than I did before, and I've never had an easy time with it.
2: Wow. I can't even imagine... Uh, coming out of, of that long of a time out there, you know, I spent a few weeks in the woods at a time, and I thought that was a long time, but months is, gosh, you know, that's that's next level. And I, you know, I think you did great on the show. I, like I said, we were all rooting for you, um, and that damn moose, you know, that damn moose. But so, so now, so now, kind of, what are you, what are you doing? And I, I know you have your own company, and uh, and I know you're working on a book, and I want to talk about both of those a little bit.
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I've had my business for for years, um, and was have been devoted to teaching ancestral skills for a long time. And one particular focus for me has been hide tanning and um, and working with with buckskin clothing. Um, so my book is about is about making buckskin clothing. I have a couple other book projects too, not all of which I'm advertising currently, um, but you know i've really shifted the way i'm teaching these days because i used to mostly travel around and teach classes in person and with and always be like promoting living wilder and to me part of why buckskin feels so important is it's a way to incorporate something from the wild and something that doesn't involve like machinery and factories something that's nothing between me and this wild thing but my own sweat and the work of my own muscles so to me that's something really beautiful about buckskin and also the long history that that humanity has with buckskin or something very like buckskin is really beautiful so it's like connection to the wild and connection those parts of myself that knew what it was to live totally wild, you know, like my ancestors did. Um, So teaching about those things has always been important to me. But now, having been on a loan, all of a sudden, like, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are paying attention to what I'm doing, like, you know, I get... Or at any rate, millions of people were exposed to watching me, whether any of those people are following me now. But, you know, like I get probably like 10 to 20 messages every day or two from folks saying, oh my gosh, I loved, you know, I loved what you were doing out there and and I'm curious about more of it. So now I'm putting out a lot more content oriented towards spreading the skills a lot further. I've been doing a lot more talks. I've been doing a ton of podcasts and interviews and kind of using the, the greater visibility I had with alone to really spread the passion for these skills a lot further. There's so many people who are like, you were so amazing and I could never do that. And I'm like, no, no, no. My journey was to show you that you can do that. And if you don't believe you can, watch this video because I'm going to try to help you do just that and like I wanted to be the spokesperson for the common person not the like badass that gets put on a pedestal and mm-hmm. people don't think they can do these things I think we're all capable of them and you know we clearly wouldn't be here if our ancestors weren't capable of them so yeah
2: that's to, awesome to, to demonst- I like that and we and I feel like the company here can really Uh, identify with that mindset a lot, Um, you know, because we're all just a bunch of average guys here, you know, and maybe just with a little bit of a special skill set that anybody can really acquire with a little bit of time and dedication to those skills. Uh, You can acquire them as well. And and you can get to a level of proficiency well above the average person or even some of the really skilled people out there. Um, And so where are you teaching your courses? Is it primarily online right now? or, Or how are you doing that?
3: Yeah, well, right now because of because of coronavirus, it is mostly online. I mean, I used to travel a lot and this whole spring and summer I had a super busy teaching schedule. I was going to be traveling all over and teaching and then teaching in Europe this summer, um, but almost everything, basically all of that has been canceled. So right now I'm focusing more on online. So I have a YouTube channel. and putting out a lot of videos. Um, I have a Patreon membership and I do content that's just for my Patreon members sometimes Um, and then developing my first ever online course which I put out as a skills gathering so kind of taking you through all of the basics of bushcraft and ancestral skills and and some of the basic survival skills Um, so that's been hugely successful and I've been running that all summer and I'm have another course that I'm doing through another company um, next month that we're trying to get lined up so yeah just really shifting towards a lot more online stuff because that's The nature of the world right now, but I am really excited to get back to teaching in-person classes. That's definitely where my passion lays. But I also can only teach so many people in person, so the online stuff gives a lot more people access, and that's really important to me.
2: Right, and it's the same for us, you know. And and us teaching our courses here, it's something that we really enjoy. Is 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 that interaction, the community that's involved there. Uh, There's a lot to be said for it. It's it's kind of cool that. Um, so many people are interested in the things that we're interested in and and live a lifestyle like that or want to begin and start a lifestyle like that. And so that's big for us uh, at Fieldcraft as well. So it's cool to see other people out there doing it. Um, So what can you tell us about your book? What else about your book? Yeah. So, so my
3: business is called Buckskin Revolution and, um, and that's the name of my book as well. And I'm just in the process. I finished the writing on that book in January. But now I'm in the process of taking what was like a huge, unwieldy 26 chapters and wow. breaking it into two. So it'll be a lot more digestible. It'll be essentially kind of like a beginner's and more advanced skills for um, for taking deerskins and turning them into beautiful clothing that is practical to wear in a modern lifestyle. You know, I think a lot of folks just dress up in their buckskins when they go to these skills events. One once or twice a year, but I'm all about ways that we can integrate all of these skills into our life in a daily way. And most of us wear clothing every day, depending on the climate that you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so that's what that book is about. But I also, I have like five book projects, um, a lot of how tos around kind of sustainable living and wild harvest and making your own gear and understanding your place as an animal in a wild body and, and finding our way back to the way we evolved to be, because I think that people are happier and healthier and more balanced and grounded when we're using our bodies for what they evolved to do. Um, so that's a lot of what I'm, what I'm doing is geared towards, but, um, but yeah, buckskin. And then you also could be paying attention to my website and my mailing list for other book projects that are still secret, but will be coming out at some point.
2: Awesome. I look forward to them. I'm gonna to have to pick up a copy and give it a read whenever it gets out here. Um, and you know, it, it'd be it'd be awesome to get you out at, may, at maybe a survival seminar or uh, maybe we can do a class or something and get you out. It'd be awesome to 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 one learn from you and, and get the fieldcraft uh, tribe and community involved in what you're doing as well. Um, so so what is your website?
3: that? what's that.
2: I was just gonna say, what's your website, your uh, Instagram handle, and what's the best way to kind of find your classes and get a hold of you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So almost everything um, that I do is under Buckskin Revolution. So my website is Buckskinrevolution.com, My YouTube is Buckskin Revolution. My Instagram is Buckskin Revolution. Um, And, uh, my mailing, I have a mailing list on my website. So as soon as you get onto my website, a mailing list comes up and that's the best way to, to hear about what I'm putting out. So I send out a newsletter, you know, like when I, when I have new projects and updates about my book and that kind of thing. So, um, also I have a Patreon membership where folks it's a, it's membership based. So it's anywhere from like three to $95 a month. And then you're getting a lot more updates and you're getting access to my videos um, and discounts on my courses and, you know, exclusive content that, you know, I keep, keep the Patreon members kind of more advised of exactly what I'm up to as mm. opposed to the more general, a couple times a year that the folks on the mailing list get. So yeah, lots of ways to plug in. I also do online mentoring with video or phone calls and that's through Sage FM. Um, and there's links to that on my website too. So yeah, lots of ways to plug in.
2: Awesome. And, and lastly, what advice would you give someone who is new to this environment and new to this way of life in in their way of going forward and becoming more prepared?
3: Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, we've certainly touched on a lot of that in today's like cultivating, um, a sense of comfort with the discomfort, cultivating a sense of want in your life so that you really appreciate the things that you have. Um, I really think that engaging deeply with the natural world is really important. And that starts to, that starts to kind of shift your mindset to that place of connection and curiosity, even if you're not doing the skills and then you're that much better off once you start learning the skills. So things like bird shifts, paying attention to the birds around you because the human ear is kind of geared towards the sound of bird song. And that's a great awareness practice because almost anywhere that you live, even if you're in an apartment in New York city, you probably have birds around, you know, there's pigeons and house sparrows and peregrine falcons, even in the hearts of cities. And once you shift your awareness to the greater than human world, it does so much for your ability to see things that you previously we're blind to, and that's going to have you more in touch with resources, more in touch with, you know, shifting weather patterns that might affect you. Like it's, it's building that mindset that's going to have you better prepared for every skill that you ever try to learn and apply throughout your life.
2: Wow. That's great advice. I need to, I need to incorporate that a little bit more myself. Um, well, well, Nia, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. There's a lot of good stuff here and I hope our listeners get a lot from it. I really appreciate your time.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's a great conversation. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.